this is Jen Rubin, and this is Jen Rubin's Green Room. Happy 2024. We have a special show today for those of you who are paying attention last week or who saw the notes, and that is we're going to have a Ask Me Anything Day. And boy, we got a lot of questions and a lot of interesting ones, so we will get to that. Uh, but first, I want to hit on two developments that happened just in the last 24 hours or so. Uh, we're recording this on Tuesday, so that is Monday or Tuesday. Monday, the Supreme Court in Israel struck down the government's attempt to limit court review. I know it's a little complicated. They passed a reform that said courts could no longer consider whether a law was reasonable or not. The Supreme Court of Israel said, not so fast, government. We still have a role in this democracy, and the courts are independent and get to separately assess legislation. So this was a victory for independent court review. It was a big loss for Bibi Netanyahu, who has become increasingly authoritarian as time goes on. And most importantly, it is a huge win for hundreds of thousands of Israelis, which understanding it's a very small country is a huge percentage of the population that was out in the streets for over 30 weeks protesting this attack on the judiciary. So essentially they said, you're trying to change the fundamental nature of Israel. You're saying, if you've got the votes, you get to decide everything. That's not the Israel we know, and that's not the Israel we want. And the Supreme Court said, you know, you're right. And there were actually two decisions. One was whether to uphold this specific statute, and the other was on the more general principle about whether the Supreme Court can weigh in on these changes to so-called basic law, um, the kind of foundational uh, law of Israel. And the vote on the second one was quite lopsided. Um, they actually had um, double digits um, on a usually heavy, heavily divided court. So it showed that this cut across party division. And we saw in the protests over that very long period of time before the war that the movement caught on not only among secular Jews, but among religious Jews, not only in the tech sector, but in other sectors as well, among educated, among less educated Israelis. So it really was an impressive showing of kind of a spirit of, if you will, democracy and a spirit of civic ownership of their government that we have not seen in Israel really since the founding days of the state. And as time goes on, I think this is going to be extremely important, not only for U.S.-Israel relations, but for the war. So let me explain. The war is being fought with huge public support, given the October 7 um, massacre. But more and more Israelis are taking to the streets to say, okay, I think we've accomplished what we set out to do. We need to get the hostages back. If this goes on indefinitely, as it sometimes indicates from the language the government uses, we're never going to get those people back. And so in the conduct of the war, there is beginning to become this divide, which happens to be the same divide that we saw in the democracy protests. And 
what does that tell us? It tells us that the government of Israel is wildly out of touch on two very big issues with the people of Israel, and that is on the nature of its democracy, and secondly, on the conduct of this war. So I think if President Biden is smart, and he has been around Bibi Netanyahu and Israel for decades, um, and I think he does have the smarts, he will use his credibility with the Israeli people to his advantage. He will go to them and make the case that it is time to begin to focus more narrowly on their targets. And in fact, today on Tuesday, the Israelis um, shot shot down, killed a um, terrorist with a missile who was residing not in Gaza, but in Lebanon. Um, So it shows there are other ways to go about defeating Hamas other than um, plowing into uh, Gaza. So I think he will use this to his advantage insofar as he can now talk to the Israeli people and say, I get you. He, too, was wary of these uh, attacks on democracy. He, too, called for a consensus building. He, too, has been calling for a more farsighted view of what's going to become of Gaza after the war ends. So in a very real sense, um, Biden is much more in touch with the Israeli people than maybe Netanyahu is. So it's going to be an interesting development. And I hope it uh, the latest uh, ruling from the Supreme Court accelerates the time when he will go and when he will leave government in disgrace, I would add, since he was in power at the time of the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. So that's on the international front. On the domestic front, just within the last hour or so, we received word that Claudine Gay, who is the president, was the president of Harvard, has resigned. Now, there are two things going on with her. One was the response to anti-Semitism and to violence and abuse on campus when she apparently could not quite wrap her mind around the notion that Jews were protected, just like blacks, just like women, just like anybody else um, under their code of conduct, Um, and that in any case, they shouldn't be tolerating calls for genocide against anyone. Uh, That was going on. But at the same time, there were these trickling of reports um, of plagiarism. And Harvard has a very strict plagiarism standard, and people in the media and alumni of Harvard began writing about this, making the point that this conduct would not be tolerated if you were an undergraduate or a graduate student, or frankly, if you were just a run-of-the-mill professor. And these reports did not go away. Um, She did not Uh, accept responsibility for any um, infraction of um, ethics, Um, but she did make some changes in prior work, including her PhD dissertation, I would say. And Harvard likewise said they didn't find that there was um, violation of their ethical code, but nevertheless, we needed to make these changes. And that just didn't sit well with the Harvard community. And I have to say, for a while, I've been reading the the Crimson, which is the newspaper for Harvard, the student newspaper, which has been very interesting because it really gives you a sense of how this was going down. 
And I think the sense among students and many on the faculty is this is becoming a headache. This is becoming more trouble than it's worth. Why should we have to defend someone who's already under attack um, for, about conduct, which we really disapprove of, which is sloppiness in attribution and in quotes? And so she resigned today. So what do I think about this? Well, I think it was probably in the end all too much for her to survive. And she had lost the confidence, not only of the alumni and media people, as her defenders said, but of the students themselves and of the faculty. But I want to suggest there's another lesson here. And that is the Ivy League is a scam. Yes, a scam. They have marketed themselves as the only road to success, the road to power. If you want to be a powerful, influential person in America, you must go to one of these schools. You must kill yourself in high school trying to get into one of these. You must have all kinds of activities that you do or do not like um, so you can pad out your resume. You must accomplish all of these other things, and your parents must pay a year to send you to us. It's a scam because the basic premise does not hold true. There may have been a time in America's past around the turn of the century, the last century, not this one, when the golden ticket um, was handed out to success only at schools like Harvard and Yale. That is long gone. I'm a graduate of UC Berkeley very good undergraduate school, very good law school, hasn't impeded my career. No one ever asked, well, why didn't you go to Harvard or we prefer someone from Harvard? It just doesn't happen in the real world. If you or your parents send you uh, to a good school and you do really well and you hit the ground running in your first job, you have a chance for success. The president of the United States did not go to Harvard. Um, The president of many companies um, or the CEO of many companies um, no longer goes to Harvard or Yale. There are many institutions. And so this fetish that we have with these institutions, which frankly are broken, they are confused about their mission. They are confused about their standards. Why send your kid there? And I must say, America's parents and America's students have been listening. I was just informed that early admission requests for Harvard were down 17% last year. Hmm. I wonder why that is. So I think one way of going about this is the marketplace. As a former conservative and still someone who believes in the marketplace, let's let the people decide. Right now, Harvard is a bit of a shit show. Pardon my language. So they're getting fewer people who want to go there. And the better students will start going other places. And those students will figure out that they can be just as successful as the kids who are still trying to get into the Ivy League. So perhaps this is a reckoning that has been long in coming, not necessarily for speech codes or for how the uh, institutions deal with plagiarism, but for the nature of the institutions themselves, what value they have, and why we attribute such, um, I guess, attention and quality and reverence for institutions, which, as I said, are pretty broken these days.
let us now get to ask me anything. And you did. I have a whole packet of things here that you have asked me. So we'll try to go through them. Some of them are amusing and kind of funny. Others are very interesting and kind of thought-provoking. So let's start, shall we? We have from Adam in New York City. When was the moment you first decided you'd be voting for Democrats? Had you voted for any before Trump hit the scene? The answer is yes, I had voted for Democrats before. Um, I'm a long, I was a longtime resident of California, and the Republican, Cal- the Republican Party in California has been screwed up for a very long time. So I must say, I voted at least once, probably twice, for Dianne Feinstein, who I thought was a very moderate, middle of the road Democrat, um, and had no problem uh, voting for her at all. So there were Democrats from time to time that I voted. Uh, for. I had not voted for president, however, for a Democrat before I voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. And I get the question all the time, sort of in mock horror, how could you have been a Republican? What were you doing? What were you thinking? And the answer is, it was a very, very different Republican Party. This was the party of Mitt Romney. In fact, I voted for Mitt Romney for president in 2012. I thought he was a very admirable person who understood, frankly, the risk from and the threat from Russia, for example. Um, this was the party of John McCain. This was the party of George H.W. Bush. Uh, this was a party of Teddy Roosevelt going back to Lincoln. It was a party of opportunity. It was the party that, um, at least um, during the civil rights era, had joined forces to change the fabric of American society. And there were things that were attractive about the Republican Party way back then. It was pro-immigration. Boy, not anymore. Um, there was certainly a libertarian streak in the Republican Party that what you did in the privacy of your own home was your own business. <laughs> That's not in truth anymore. That's not in play anymore. I was in favor of free trade, for example. That's not in fashion. They're all for all kinds of punishment and tariffs and all the rest of it. So a lot of the things that I believed in when I was a Republican no longer apply. And certainly the character of the individuals has completely fallen off the map. I had no problem voting for John McCain. I would never vote for Donald Trump or any one of the MAGA enablers who has been in office these past few years when we've had this national calamity. So I'm often also asked, although Adam didn't ask it, I will, would you ever vote for a Republican again? And my answer is it would have to be an entirely new Republican Party and an entirely different kind of Republican. Um, first of all, without the protection of Roe v. Wade, um, I would not vote for anyone who was not pro-choice. Um, when Roe was in effect, um, there was a lot of squawking about abortion, and certainly I was uh, in favor of uh, women's access to health care. But it was more theoretical argument, frankly, because we all assumed Roe v. Wade was there to strengthen the rights of women. Well, that's gone. So I'm not voting for anyone who is not pro-choice. So if a pro-choice, pro-democracy, anti-Trump Republican were to come along, would I consider voting for that person? Probably, with a caveat that... I need a new Republican Party for that person to come from. 
because I do not want that person to then have to face a MAGA-filled Congress or have a cabinet that is stuffed with MAGA-type people. So I think the short answer is I don't see myself voting for a Republican again in my lifetime. So let's move on. Jessica from Washington, D.C. asks, what are your New Year's resolutions? I hope you accomplish them. Well, my first resolution would be to save America and our democracy, but that's not my job alone. I would hope that's all of our jobs. Um, The next I would um, suggest would be that I not get quite so angry with the mainstream media. As those of you who follow me know, it drives me to distraction when I see them playing the moral equivalence game or I see them soft peddling what Trump is all about. So I think a good New Year's resolution would be to breathe, relax, understand that many people now are on to them and to reply as uh, strongly as I always have, but perhaps without the level of irritation that I have always shown. So that would be one of my New Year's resolutions. Um, Next question from Valerie in Los Angeles. Should we expand the Supreme Court? Is there anything else that can be done to ensure they support our democracy? Well, first things first, they need an ethics code. It is shameful, the behavior we have seen, and the conduct of Clarence Thomas would not be tolerated on any other court, frankly, any other office uh, in um, the federal government. So they need an ethics um, rule and an ethics regime, which allows people to make complaints and then gets resolved by an independent entity, not them. And there actually is such an entity. Um, it's the Judicial Conference. It was created by Congress. And that body could appoint someone who is essentially an independent moderator or an independent arbiter of um, conflicts of interest. Uh, conflicts of interest and other ethics issues. So that you need. Next, it is ridiculous that we still have lifetime appointments to the Supreme Court. When the founders came along, they did not envision that someone at age 35 or 45 or even 55 would be appointed to the high court, and then stay there for 30 or 40 years. The dead weight of history, the dead weight of um, people who are long since um, out of and ceased to be in touch with American society, that was never envisioned. And we really do need um, term limits. There's a lot of question, though, whether we could accomplish that through statute or whether we would have to use a constitutional amendment. And so we come back to the question from Valerie, what about expanding the court? And you know what? I've come around to that conclusion as well. Larry Tribe, the great Larry Tribe, convinced me. And he convinced me because two things, really. First of all, there's a question about whether we could actually enact term limits. And guess who would be deciding whether term limits were effective? The Supreme Court. And secondly, it would take a very long time because no one is suggesting that all of their term limits cease immediately. And in fact, what we need is triage. We need to rush in experts in the law and fill the ranks at the Supreme Court. There's no magic to nine seats. We have 13 circuits. Um, We could have 13 justices on the Supreme Court. There's no magic to it at all. So, The short answer is yes, I would be absolutely happy to have a uh, Supreme Court that was 11 or that was 9 or that was 13, whatever the number need be. And frankly, if 
some of these justices pass um, from the scene, there's no rule that says you have to replace them. Maybe we go down to seven at some point. So keep that in mind. Next question. John Fetterman, this comes from Javier in Las Vegas. John Fetterman has started breaking with the party. Should we love him or leave him? By the way, I love that show. And I don't know if anyone asked me about it, but incidentally, deviation, uh, sideways motion for a moment. My guilty pleasure is watching shows like Love It or List It, International, uh, House Hunters, all those shows. I love them. I love them. That's a guilty pleasure. But uh, love him or leave him, uh, John Fetterman. I think John Fetterman is terrific. I think he's candid. I think he doesn't take guff from anyone. He's without pretense. And he's a solid Democrat. He's not breaking with the president. He's not voting for crazy Republican stuff. He's no Joe Manchin. He's a solid Democrat, a center-left Democrat, just like uh, Joe Biden. So I have no problem with John Fetterman. I think he's terrific. And um, I actually do like the fact that he wears a suit now, by the way. I think that's a, that's a good idea. from Seattle, Washington, asks, do you think Trump will be convicted on any of his charges? Which do you think are the most likely? Well, yes, I do think he's going to get convicted. I think he's going to get convicted in at least three of them. Uh, The one that concerns the D.C. coup, that is the uh, the federal case in D.C. Uh, District Court. Um, it may get delayed a little bit because we now have these appeals concerning immunity. We have an issue concerning the 14th Amendment. But I think that is going to go to trial next year. Maybe not in March, but by May or June, um, certainly sometime during the summer. And I think with a good judge, an excellent prosecutor, and really no factual or legal defense for him, he's going to get convicted. And that's the big one, because that's the one that holds him accountable for trying to destroy our democracy. Then there is the New York case. A lot of people forget about New York, or they give it short shrift. They say, well, it's not all that important. It's just about falsifying business documents related to the hush money that he paid to the star, uh, the uh, porn star before the election of 2016. Whoa, time out. This is important stuff. He falsified documents so that the voters wouldn't figure out who he was. That is, in fact, a election-related crime. That's the first time he tried to pull the wool over the American people doing something that was illegal in order to get elected. And that's real stuff. And by the way, this is not selective prosecution. This DA, um, Alvin Bragg in Manhattan, has brought dozens of these cases, not involving a porn star, but involving a some kind of falsification of business records. The people of New York have a right to expect that businesses will keep accurate records because they have meaning. They have meaning for banks and insurance companies and everything else. So I would not um, poo-poo this particular um, case. And I think, once again, he doesn't really have a defense. All he's doing is hopping up and down and screaming, I'm a victim. So there, too, I think he's going to get convicted. Next, we have Atlanta. 
We have the entire scheme of um, the false electors and trying to pressure the Republicans there to find, quote, uh, 11,780 votes, which would have flipped the state to him. And once again, they have him caught dead to rights. They have the facts. They have the law. And I think there are going to be some more plea bargains, so there'll be more witnesses against him. Not clear whether that case will go to trial in 2024, but when it does, I think he's going to get convicted. And lastly, what I will say about the documents case is this is arguably as serious as the January 6th case. This guy took the most closely held documents, including documents apparently related to a strike on Iran. Oh, by the way, that's kind of relevant these days. And he took them. He lied about taking them. He refused to give them back. He arguably lied to prosecutors and to his own people about whether he still had them. He should be prosecuted. Now, he drew a judge who was just awful. And frankly, um, I think Jack Smith made a bad call um, bringing suit in Florida. There's a theory by which he could have brought suit in D.C. Um, But in any case, um, they are in Florida. This judge is atrocious. She's dragging her heels and um, will all be, you know, in the next world uh, and not just Donald Trump um, by the time she gets around to allowing a trial to go forth. So I'm less optimistic about that one. But in answer to uh, the question from uh, Paul uh, from Seattle, yes, he is going to get convicted in one or more cases next year. So we have that to look forward to. Jackie from Detroit, Michigan asks, can you share your favorite fiction and favorite nonfiction book with us? I love this question because I read a lot. And if you read my newsletter, which you can get if you're a subscriber to the Washington Post, shameless plug, um, you will find out that I read a lot. And I talk to my readers at the Washington Post about books a lot. And I would say my favorite nonfiction book of all time is Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Suns. And that is about the great migration of Blacks from the South to the North and to the West. And it is just beautifully written and utterly fascinating. It's a long book, as a lot of books that I really love are. Um, It is filled with insight into the human condition and insight into American society, and it is just terrific. I, I adore it. Now, fiction books, I have many favorites here, so it's going to be a little hard for me to single out one, but I think I would have to come up with a gentleman from Moscow. Um, and um, it is a, it's indescribable. It's the tale of an individual who, um, for various reasons, gets trapped in a hotel, the Metropole, in, um, in Moscow, and has to remain there over decades. And it's the story of his life and the people he interacts with and the Russian society as it changes and doesn't change. And I hate, I would hate to um, compare it to one of the great books of all times, but it's sort of like a Dr. Zhivago. It really is. It's, it's that big in scope and that fabulous and that beautifully written. So, um, oh, and the author is Amir Tolles, who also wrote uh, The Lincoln Highway, which is very, very good, but not as good as A Gentleman in Moscow. All right, let's continue on. 
Um, someone asks, Isaac in Portland, I'm graduating this summer and want to see the world. What places do you recommend seeing? Do you have any favorites? Well, the other thing I love, love to do is travel. And I'm fortunate enough to be able to travel. Um, and my idea of fun travel is not sitting on the beach. I know that's not going to shock many of you, but my idea is going to cities and seeing operas and ballets and going to museums and walking for miles and having great meals and the rest. And when you put those criteria into it, um, Italy, which we have been uh, to many times, um, is really up there um, as a high point. And the other is Amsterdam. Um, it is a lovely city. It is rich in history. It is um, very walkable and very livable um, as a tourist, if that's not a contradiction. Great museums, great art, um, and really one of my favorites. Um, and uh, been there a couple times, um, so I highly recommend it. Let's see. We have Juliana in San Francisco. She asks, what first made you want to get into politics? Now, this question surprised me, not because it's an odd question, but because I don't really think of myself as in politics. I think of myself as a journalist who covers politics or who covers policy. And the bigger question, how did I get into this, or first what made me want to get into it, is from the time I was a kid, that was the topic of discussion at the dining room table. It was about politics. It was about policy. It was about the war in Vietnam. It was about every policy issue that you could have imagined in the late 60s and into the 70s. And that's just what our family did. We argued and we talked about politics. And the magazines that were in the house were the Atlantic, Newsweek, and that's what I read. Um, and so it was always with me. And I was always fascinated by it because it's really about the human condition. It, you know, they say that politics is a morality played out in policy. Um, so it's always been fascinating to me. I was a history major and still read a lot of history. And policy and politics is nothing but the beginning of history. It's what makes up history. It's what will, when they look back upon as our history. So it's always been uh, a fond hope of mine that I would be in, in the political realm in some fashion. I started my career, uh, started my adult uh, life as a lawyer for about 20 years, moved to Washington, D.C., and took up journalism. And it was a great fit. I love doing it. Um, there's nothing I would rather do right now, even with Donald Trump in the scene. And even though I would sometimes like to put my fingers in my ears and hum, but uh, politics, public policy um, still um, drives me, fascinates me. Um, so thank you for that question. David in Phoenix asks, could you pick a historical figure to meet? Who would it be and why? Wow, that is a hard one. 
I guess I'm going to have to go for one of the biggies, which is Lincoln. Um, and again, it won't surprise you, I've read a lot about Lincoln. And I find him such an intensely human character, partially because he went through depression, he went through loss of children, he was in an unhappy marriage, he lived a very human life. And of course, he was president at a critical time. We would not have survived as a union without him. And he also changed over the course of his life, coming to understand that the destruction of slavery was essential to keeping the union together. And of course, he also wrote beautifully and uh, was a self-educated man, never went to school, um, and came from very poor folk. Um, so I have always found him to be a fascinating character and a really kind of an, an inspiration for uh, the American dream of coming from the most humble beginnings um, and attaining great things, doing great things. So um, definitely uh, up there is one of my favorite uh, would-you-like-to-meet uh, individuals. Next question from Yasmin in Chicago, Illinois. Do you think Trump voters are still persuadable? If so, are personal appeals or trying to provide sources more effective? Well, let me answer it this way. There are some who are persuadable and there are others who definitely are not. And there are some people, it does not make a difference how, what the facts are. It does not make a difference what uh, evidence you supply. It's useless. Sad, but useless. There are other people who either have become forgetful about the dangers of Donald Trump or think Donald Trump may be checked in office, in other words, kept in line by other people, um, or who, for whatever reason, are tired of Joe Biden, don't like Joe Biden. So it's all of our jobs to remind people what's at stake. And yes, I think um, it is important to make personal appeals, but to do it with Trump's own words, to present to them what he has said he wants to do in a second term, like use the military to suppress civil dissent, like using the Justice Department to get back at his enemies. This is about retribution, about revenge, about some pipe dream he has of creating a dictatorship. He is entirely unfit for office. He's mentally, morally unfit. Um, and the only uh, thing I can say for all these people who work for him who are now coming forward is, where were you before? Where have you been for years when you hadn't warned us that he is, of course, completely incapable of making informed decisions, processing information, acting on the um, best um, interests of the, the country rather than his own best interests. So find those people who are persuadable, talk to them, and use Trump's own words, use his own actions, um, which is the best evidence, I think, against him. Greta in New Haven, Connecticut asks, do you think AI is a net benefit or a net danger to our jobs and the wider economy? That is a great question. Um, I would say, and it's not meant to be a dodge, but it's both, but in an in a unfortunate way. Ever since we became a knowledge-based economy, um, we have experienced more and more economic inequality. 
Now, that's not the only cause of economic inequality. We also have a tax code. We also have lots of other factors that um, have hollowed out the middle class. But once you have an economy that depends on expertise, that devalues manual labor, devalues repetitive exercises, then the people who are skilled, who are intelligent, who are able to get a advanced degree, those people do very well and everyone else does very poorly. And I would suggest that Perfect example is automated vehicles, um, automated uh, cars and trucks. Um, we're going to have a lot less truck drivers. And right now, a truck driver, an independent truck driver can make a good living. Um, and uh, 20 years from now, or maybe even less, there are going to be a lot fewer truck drivers. There'll be more people working on programming for trucks and more pr- people working on designing the chips that go into trucks, but it won't be as many. And it's going to be people who are highly educated and highly skilled. And I think that's the uncertainty, the anxiety that AI produces, in addition to the fact that we're concerned about deep fakes and manipulation and everything else having to do with AI. Um, we have a lot of questions here, so I'm going to pick out just a final few that are kind of fun, and um, we'll end with those. Um, let's see. Um, Nicholas from Tacoma. Oh, actually, let me take Carly from Honolulu and say, Carly in Honolulu asks, what media do you consume as part of your daily reading? I get asked this a lot, and I'm always happy to share because I want people to read the best. Um, I work for the Washington Post, and there is good reporting in the Washington Post. Not all of it, what I say, is the best of the best, but you will find solid, good reporting in the Washington Post. And you'll find some opinion writers who I think are very smart and can uh, improve your understanding. Um, probably my favorite, other than my employer, is The Atlantic. Um, as I said, I've read it since I was a kid, and I think it has the highest percentage of must-read articles of any publication. It, it's still a monthly magazine, um, but it is also a online and is daily updated um, with writers who I admire tremendously, Herr uh, Rosenberg, Tom Nichols, and Applebaum, um, really a terrific assortment of people who are very smart, who will improve your understanding. I also now, because of the war in Israel, read a lot of the English language Israeli press, the Times of Israel, Haaretz, the Jerusalem Post, and those give you a lot more detail. And it's not as if they're cheerleaders for the Israeli government. To the contrary, some of them are very critical of uh, Netanyahu and the current government. Um, But you do get a lot of detail and you get a lot of, uh, I I think, perspective that you don't necessarily get from the American media. What else do I listen to or what else do I um, consume? Um, I must say I'm a sucker for legal podcasts. Um, Sisters-in-law, available on uh, Politicon, is one of my favorites. Talking Feds with Harry Littman, who, by the way, is a law school classmate of mine, is terrific, um, and he really um, engages. And lastly, I would say The Bulwark. Um, They are doing some of the best analysis, some of the best discussion, um, and they, of course, are never Trumpers. They really understand Republicans. 
questions and they understand the problem with their arguments. They understand the pitfalls and um, they are very amusing, very funny readers. So I would commend all of that to all of you. Now, let's see. Um, This is a question after my own heart. Olivia in Aspen, Colorado asks, when did you first know you were a dog person? From birth. Um, Our family has always had dogs. I am a dog nut. I'm the kind of person who crosses the street to pet a strange dog. I'm the kind of person who dreams about having an estate where you can have 20 dogs because I love all these breeds. I love dogs. Um, I have an English setter named Amos, who's quite eccentric and quite sweet. Um, In the past, I've had a golden retriever. Uh, We had a dachshund when I was a kid. We had a Siberian and German shepherd mix, but I love dogs. Um, I watch the Westminster Dog Show religiously every year. I watch the National Dog Show, which is on Thanksgiving every year religiously. Um, I go to dog shows, um, and yes, um, I love them, and it is, I think, a minor miracle that you can have such an empathetic, close relationship with another species. Um, and um, yeah, what else can I say? I love dogs, always have. Um, let me end with this one. Do uh, Molly in Miami, Florida asks, do you have a favorite show genre? And what are you watching to start off the year? Well, I have really sort of two answers to that. One is I am a sucker for rom-coms. Yes, I watch them incessantly, and most of them are really bad. Um, Nora Ephron, I think, perfected the art of the rom-com, um, and I miss her tremendously. Um, she made some of the best, um, but I still love them. Um, the other that I enjoy, this is not going to surprise you, both in television and in motion pictures, is historical thrillers, um, war, things that have to do with the real world and conflicts and problems. Borgen, which was a series produced um, and then shown on Netflix, which is about the Danish prime minister, one of my favorite series of all times. Um, I loved Fauda, um, which is the Israeli uh, series about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Um, I um, absolutely love Band of Brothers, um, which is the multi-part series on World War II. Um, So any of those kinds of shows I I really love. And as far as going into this year, I can't say that I have found a new show that has really grabbed me, Um, but I will mention two films. One is American Fiction, which is hysterical, about a black academic who decides to write a trashy, exploitive black novel, and to his chagrin, um, makes a mint doing it. And it is a great takedown of liberals, of Hollywood, of publishing companies, um, and it's just an absolute delight. And the other one is called Bank of Dave. And it is on Netflix. Um, it's a story about a guy who goes to a little town, um, Burnley in Northern England. Um, and he's sent there on a fool's errand to be a lawyer for a guy who wants to start a community bank. Why is this a fool's errand? Well, in England, they had not 
chartered a bank for 150 years. This is the quintessential old boys club. And what happens and how he gets to get his bank and the class rivalry and the sort of social mores of um, London um, are really delightful. So I would highly recommend that to you. Well, this has been a ton of fun. I will do it again. I have many questions I did not get to. I am sorry, but our time is coming to an end. Um, but send them in. We'll do this again. Maybe sort of halfway through the year, we'll do another one of these. And in the meantime, uh, please tell your friends if you enjoy Jen Rubin's Green Room. We'll be back with a new show every Wednesday. Uh, Next week, we'll begin our 2024 shows. If you like this show, please tell your friends. They can watch Jen Rubin's Green Room on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever they get their podcasts. Bye-bye. 